following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. It is an honor to be with you and to be here and the awesome privilege of bringing forth the Word of God. So Pastor mentioned our topic today is on the virtue of godliness. This concludes a series of sermons on the seven shaping virtues of the Christian life. And this final one uh, that will conclude that series is on the virtue of godliness. So I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Second Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 12, and that will be our text for the day, and we will regularly make reference to that particular verse. Second Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, and this is the word of God. I'd ask you, although a short verse, please stand with me, if you would, out of reverence and honor for the God of the word and for his holy scriptures. Second Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, indeed... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Lord, we come before you, Lord, just humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Our prayer today is that you might be exalted and lifted up on high and glorified. Lord, that your word would go forth even as you promised. It would not return to you void, but accomplish that which you've pleased to touch hearts and lives, all of us, Lord, we stand in great need. And I pray, Lord, you might uh, hide this poor preacher behind the cross, and may you be exalted above all is our prayer, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Might be seated. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the words godly and godliness. They occur, surprisingly, very few times in the New Testament. My count, I think, was about 22 of them. And the great majority, and by that I mean 90% or more, of the references to godly or godliness occur in the pastoral epistles, that's First and Second Timothy and Titus, and in the book of Second Peter. As we ponder this... Uh, I'm going to make this statement. I think you'll find it on your bulletin if you have it. And I believe it's a true one. That godliness flows out of a heart devoted to God. And so many things in the Christian faith, it primarily begins within, within a person. And from the inward flow outward uh, results. If Someone only has the outward without having the inward. In God's sight, that just is no good. It is having, as it says elsewhere in the scriptures, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. That's the power of God. So godliness will begin in the heart with a heart devoted to God and flow out into godly living and godly actions. Now, there is only one person that has walked this earth that has had a heart totally and completely devoted to God 
and a life of perfect godliness. And, of course, that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would say that godliness, as far as a life is concerned, is Christ-likeness. He's the godly one. And as our life in patterns his character and his attributes, so our lives will be godly lives. So I'd like to begin by bringing forth your attention four characteristics of a heart devoted to God. Since that's where godliness flows from, let's think about that for just a moment. Um, you may want to add some more to this list of four, but just four is all I'm going to mention for us today. First, a heart devoted to God has a great reverence and awe and honor and respect for God does not take him lightly, does not presume upon him, does not uh, use his name in vain as in jokes and in light jesting or in curses. How can a, a godly one even stand to hear God's name taken on? They have a great ref- reverence for God. Now, this is a very delicate balance, we understand, because... Christian people are people who know God and love God and are in an intimate relationship with God. So you have, and He is our Heavenly Father. And so there's this love and closeness on one hand, while there continues to be, and in conjunction with this, a great reverence and awe and respect for God. For He Himself is God alone and we are not. And he has created all things, and he holds our very life in his hands. And he is the Holy One of Israel. He is a great author. He's God. And we should, uh, a devout heart always calls to mind who God is and what God is, and holds him in great reference. And secondly, a heart devoted to God is one who loves God. Jesus, uh, in his ministry, was asked this question, what is the great commandment? And quoting from Deuteronomy 6, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. For you see, God is a living, personal being. He's not a human being. He's a divine being, but he's a living, real being. One can know him and knowing him, And understanding a bit who he is and of his graciousness and his mercy and his beauty and his goodness, one can come to love God. And when we begin to think of what God has done for us and the great love that that he's poured forth on us, as 1 John 4, 9 says, we love because he first loved us. And so the devoted heart is one who is Beginning to love God, certainly not like we should, but beginning to love God. I've been these last several weeks listening to Maranatha worship. Now, that dates me already. Uh, they came out in the early 70s, back in the Jesus movement, if any of you are familiar with any of that. Uh, even out here on the West Coast is where it began. And um, anyway, they've wrote some music to accompany that revival movement that spread across the land. But nonetheless, one of the songs I've been listening to goes like this. I guess you can sing along if you want. I'm not going to sing it, so fear not. But uh, in moments like these, I lift up a song. I lift up a love song for Jesus. 
In moments like these, I lift up my hands. I lift up my hands to the Lord, singing, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you. And I just wonder, in the depth of your heart today, can you say, I love you, Lord? Number three, there is a longing for God. It's compared in Scripture to someone that is starving to death and they long for bread, or someone in a wasteland that is dying of thirst, longing for water. The psalmist puts it in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 like this, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. So there's a longing to know God better and to walk with God. So longing in a burning heart to be intimate with the living God. And then finally, there is a, a desire to please God in our words and our thoughts, our actions, our attitude to be pleasing to God. Second Corinthians 5 9 says, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Make it your aim to be pleasing. The Heidelberg Catechism, very first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer that is given, and it's rather extended, says that I belong, body and soul, in life and death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and completely freed me from the dominion of the devil. And then it goes on with several other very important statements, I think. But it concludes like this. Therefore, he also by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. And that's the part I want us to emphasize being wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. A desire to please God. So out of this heart of devotion that exhibits these qualities flows a godly life. Now, looking back at our text in 2 Timothy 3.12, you'll notice that it Uh, that it says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. For only can a godly life be lived if one is in Christ. Now, to be in Christ is to be a Christian. And uh, I'll take a minute just to kind of show you how I understand this works. So you've got a, a person that's not a Christian. They have no spiritual life. They are spiritually dead. They might be nice. They might be kind. They might be giving. They might do a lot of things. But when it comes to, sp- they might have many talents and skills to uh, to write and to paint or to work or whatever. But when it comes to spiritual things, they can do nothing because they are spiritually dead. No spiritual life. That's how a non-Christian is. But God comes in touches that heart within, and gives them what they did not have before, spiritual 
life. We call it being born again. And out of that work of God in the heart of a person where he gives spiritual life, where there was none before. And that's why we say we're saved by grace. But out of that, as he begins to have his spiritual, he begins to see as he's never seen before. And he sees the greatness and holiness and beauty of God and sees his own sin and wretchedness and vileness and weakness. And he repents of those sins and wants to turn from them and turn to the Lord. And he then places, he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior that God has set forth for salvation, the Lord Jesus. He puts his trust in him. He believes in him. Now, believing in Jesus is more than believing facts about Jesus. Now, there are facts to be believed. That's for certain. But it's more than facts. For even, as the book of James tells us, even the demons and Satan believe that Jesus was a real person that lived on this earth, that he was the very son of God come in the flesh, that he died, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross to pay for sins, that he rose from the grave the third day, that he ascended to heaven and soon will return. The devil believes every single one of those facts. He hates them all, but he still believes they're true, knows they're true. And we know the devil's not a Christian. So, although facts are very important, it's more than facts. There's facts to be believed, but there's more than that. And it's more than just attending church. And this is very difficult for some who have been raised in the church, and that's all they've ever done. They've just gone to church, gone to Sunday school, carried their little Bible, done all of this. And you just assume that because I'm in church all the time, I must be a Christian. And sometimes parents even assume that for their own children. That because they're in church every time, every Sunday, surely they're Christians. Well, no more than sleeping in the garage makes you a car. Being in church all the time makes you a Christian. No, there's more. And you know how I value the church and how important it is in the Christian life. But as important as it is, it's not what makes you a Christian. So believing Christ involves these things, but but it's more. It is placing your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus. It is embracing him. As the old Puritans used to say, it is closing with Christ. It's giving yourself away to him. It's like the young man who was thinking about marriage. And he thought marriage was a good idea. In fact, he thinks the great idea, the very best thing one could ever do is be marriage. He read all kinds of books about marriage. He knew everything about marriage. He even had a girl that he liked a whole lot that he wanted to marry. But he still wasn't married for all that. But one day he went to the church and down the aisle they came and the preacher said to him, Do you take this woman to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, better for, for better, richer, poor, sickness and health, to, um, to death do you part? And what do you think he said? I do. And the preacher said, all right, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Was he married then? Yes. Now, preachers pronounce you husband and wife in the law, but in God's sight, it's not the preacher's word. It is when that commitment of the heart was made to that woman, at that time, God joined them together as man and wife. And it's when a person comes to that place in their life where they say to the Lord Jesus, I do take you as my Savior and Lord in good times or bad times, rich or poor, sickness and health. Till death do me part, I give you my life. It's that type of believing 
one becomes a Christian. And then in that moment, God takes that believing sinner and joins him to Christ. He's now joined in spiritual union with Christ. He's now in Christ. And therefore, all that person's sins are taken and placed upon the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross paid for every single one of them, no matter how great, no matter how many. Because he's in Christ. And then the perfect righteousness of Christ's earthly life is taken and placed upon that poor sinner. And now he stands righteous. No matter who he is, he stands right before God because he's in Christ and bears Christ's righteousness. And then God gives that poor sinner, that now redeemed child of God, gives him the Holy Spirit within him. And as Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says, works in him, God works in him both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's the New King James translation. So God is at work then by the Holy Spirit, working in this one to will, to want to do it, and gives the power to do it, which he does not have on his own. So then one can begin to now live a life that is godly, being in Christ Jesus. But only those in Christ Jesus can even think about living a godly life. So this is important. Live godly in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not exactly from our text, this next point, but I think it's implied, and it's, I think, implied elsewhere. Becoming godly is a process. It doesn't happen immediately. Now, when I was born... Out in Big Spring, Texas, the very minute I was born, I was a part of the Wells family. Even that very that very day, they wrote on my birth certificate, Bruce Wells. I was a Wells. I didn't have to earn it. Didn't it? Did wasn't a time delay. It was immediate. I became a Wells right away and have remained one all my days. But I didn't. Start out mature. I couldn't talk. Not on that first day. I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I couldn't run. I couldn't jump. I couldn't read. Couldn't do all kinds of things. But eventually, as time passed, I began to grow and begin to develop and begin to learn. And so I could get where I could talk a bit and I could run and I could read and I could go to school. But it was a, it was a growing process. So in the Christian life, there's some things that happen right away. Theologians call it being justified. Others being right with God. The minute you place your trust in Christ, you're made right with God. You don't have to grow or wait or any other thing that happens. And you become a child of God. That very day, you become God's child. It's not something you earn or develop right away. You have a heavenly home and right away, your heirs of salvation. But godliness is not like that. It is a process where you learn and you grow and you develop. Therefore, in a congregation like this, you are going to see people in different stages of godliness. Now, remember, that's Christ-likeness in character and words and attitudes. You'll find some just barely getting started. You'll find some 
part way along the, the journey, moving along the journey. Some have stalled out. There's reasons for that, for sure. Not getting anywhere. Then there's others that have advanced to agree, none like they should be, of course, but have advanced to agree. Where And those are the ones that when we're speaking, we generally say, now there's a godly person. Although all Christians have a bit of godliness about them, but it's because of what's happened in their heart and God at work in their hearts. It is those that have, we generally speak of those more advanced in this process by God's grace and by God's power, of course, because if he wasn't working us in us to will and do, we none of us would be anywhere. We know that. But by God's grace, some have made some advancements, and we generally refer to those as a godly person. Now, back to our text again. And the point here is that godliness has consequences. A godless, a godly life has consequences. Look, and indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Didn't say they might be or perhaps they would be or that they could be. It said they will be. And didn't say some of them would be or a majority or a few. It says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The reason for that is that spiritual darkness hates spiritual light. Now, if they have, no, if those non-Christians around you have no idea that you're a Christian and it's not that, well, then there's no problem. But as one begins to live godly, non-Christian people are going to feel uncomfortable to some degree. Because of what that godly one does and because of what that godly one will not do and because he can't help but eventually, occasionally speak of his Savior and of God's will and God's work. And, and non-Christian people can feel pretty uncomfortable about that. And there's, uh, but most don't say anything about it, that uncomfortableness in there, they just let it go. But there's some who express their hatred, if we could use that word, their dislike for the Christian faith and for the godly person. And it's expressed in persecution. Now, there are different kinds of persecution. There is verbal persecution where somebody ridicules you or slanders you or mocks you or... uh, we understand. And that old saying about sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true at all. Words hurt badly. And a Christian, a godly person, one seek making some advances in godliness may find themselves verbally persecuted. Then there is uh, social persecution where you're ostracized. Because you're a godly person, you're left out, you're neglected. People refuse to associate with you because they don't like your your Christian faith. They don't like your godly life. But then there is physical persecution. 
We don't have much of that in our country, and we should be very thankful for that. Not too much. You'll find occasionally some righteous ones will be physically persecuted. But there are other places in the world who know all about this. You live a godly life in China, you very well find yourself in jail or worse. Ask our Pakistani brothers about these things, about physical persecution. I don't know about our how it is presently, but I read in a mission magazine that in the last century, that's in, this is the 21st, in the 20th century, there were more people killed for their faith, for the Christian faith, than in all the rest of Christian history combined. People are being killed for their faith today for no other reason than they are godly, seek to follow the Lord Jesus. They become his followers. Uh, it was a number of years ago, though the story has stuck with me, about a missionary, I think it was in India, but, uh, and I think it was, a, uh, I'm not sure, but he was in his car and was surrounded by a mob who knew of his faith and knew what he stood for, surrounded by a very angry mob, he and his two boys, and they burned his car with him inside. And they found, when they tore back the wreckage a day later, they found that dead holding over those two little boys, holding them. Of course, they were all burned to death. Physical persecution. And it can happen. I've only been struck one time for my Christian faith. Um, it was in Salvador, Brazil, a city of 2.9 million. And we were there. It's a mission trip. We were there uh, in Carnival, which is corresponds to Mardi Gras, except it's darker, more sensuous, and more dangerous. And our work was handing out gospel tracts in Portuguese. They were tracts that had pictures, and there was a lot of variety, and uh, they were readable, and uh, I hardly had anybody refuse to take one. Um, and then as we would hand out the tracts, Brazilian Christians would follow, and when they'd see someone reading one of those things, they'd try to engage them in conversation. That was our strategy. And so our work was at night, and it seemed like everybody in town was out on the street at night. There was parades, there was music, there was dancing, there was all, all kinds of things going on. Um, we just handed out gospel tracts. And as I was handing out tracts, I mean, you can't imagine the crowd. But as I was handing out tracts, a man came up to me, and he doubled up his fist and hit me right in the chest. I don't think that's where he was aiming, but that's where he did. I don't know whether he was under the influence of alcohol, whether he was demon-possessed. Either one of those things in that climate could have been very possible, or whether he was just angry. But before anything else happened, a Brazilian man stepped up and just pushed him aside. And, and uh, as best I could understand the language, made some degree of apology for his foolish friend, but I don't know. Persecution. One of the consequences of a godly life you might look forward to is that. But that's not all the story. And you might look in your Bibles at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 
that says this. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life that is to come. Now, this bodily training has to do, is really concerned with exercising and for those uh, in the Greek culture preparing for games. Um, but uh, we know today that bodily exercise is really in vogue, and you find people all across our fair city walking either in twos or threes or walking their dog and um, to get exercise. In the summer, you'll see uh, people jogging pretty regularly. Uh, even Winston, out by close to where I live, we've got a gym. Uh, I'm not from Winston, but anyway, I drive by it every Sunday, and there's cars. Even on Sunday morning, cars at a gym. Why? That they might exercise. And uh, physicians tell us right, exercise is great. You keep moving is their word. And... uh because exercise is good for your health. It's good to, for, to help you sleep better. It's good to give you, uh, it's good for your mental well-being. You need to exercise, and we all know that. And so there's great, there's profit, there is benefit and value in exercising. And we don't deny that at all. But in the final day, when one stands before the judgment seat of God, you're not going to be asked how many steps you took. And it won't matter how firm your muscles are or how your health is. Bodily exercise is of no avail on the final day. But godliness, one who would live a Christ-like godly life, now that is valuable. It's valuable in the here and now. Because when you live godly in Christ Jesus, you are doing what you were designed to do. To live a Christ-like life. And there is peace in that. And there is real meaning in that. And not only that, when you stand before the judgment of God on that final day, you'll find that living a godly life is of great value for you. And to hear our Lord say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And to enter into the rewards that God has for his faithful people. And there are rewards, heavenly rewards, for righteousness, for godliness. So there's great value there. Well, let's look at some applications. What we are to do. Philippians 2, chapters 12 and 13 read like this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. So here's what it says. God works it in, and we work it out. Now, if God doesn't do his work within, then all that, whatever we might do is of no value. It is vanity. It's no good. We can't do it without God's work, and that is primary, and I want to emphasize it. But yet, we have responsibility. And that's why the commands of the Scripture are given to us, 
And we are to do them only as God works in, but nonetheless, we are to work it out. So I'm going to suggest to you some things that by God's grace and God's working in your heart, you can work them out in your life uh, concerning this topic of uh, godliness. Here's what we should do. Going back to our text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. The first thing we might do is to desire it, to want it. Now, there are many professing Christians who look at this, and when they look at it seriously, they say, no, I don't think I want godliness. I don't like the dangers that are involved. I don't like what it might cost me. I don't like the things that uh, I just don't I don't want. I don't want any of that looking, of course, forgetting the eternal value. But just for us, I don't want to be godly. And there are many others, and maybe you might even be one who never thought about living a godly life. And therefore, they have no desire for it because it's hardly crossed their minds. Well, what I would urge you to do today and what I think our passage urges urges you to do is that you need to desire to live godly. Think about it. Say, what I need to do is be a godly one. And you have a heart devoted to God so that I may flow a godly life. I need that. I want that. A desire. That's number one. The second one is to pursue godliness. First Timothy 6.11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Well, we should have probably gone back and see things we need to flee, but nonetheless. But here's what we do. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So there's things we are to pursue. Godliness is one of them. Pursue it. Now I've got a dog. Now it's really not my dog. It's my daughter's. But uh, anyway, uh, Sadie's the dog's name. And although very old now, it's by far the last leg of its poor life. Nonetheless, in younger days, I loved to walk with me. And I walked quite a bit, and so Sadie would come, and she was a good dog to walk with me. Now, she liked to go ahead. Uh, she wouldn't walk by my side. He thought she was leading me, but anyway, nonetheless, we'd walk, and, and if she, if I decided to go a different turn, she went, I, all I have to do is whistle, and here she came, went there, stayed by, and good, perfect, good little dog to walk with, enjoyed it very much, gave me company. Everything would would always go great until in dog world there was a squirrel. And then she lost everything, everything she lost it. Chased that squirrel that went into a brush pile. She would dig and scratch and bark and run. And sometimes the squirrel would go into a culvert that goes under the road, and she would stick her head in there, bark, bark, then run the other side of the road, stick it, bark, bark. I could call, I could beg, I could plead, I could whistle. Not hurt. I could offer a treat. Nothing. She, I was, I was as if I never existed in her little world. She, her mind was on one single thing. The squirrel. Many times I just said, oh, I'm going home. You have to find your way on your own. Uh, so should a Christian set his heart and his focus on godliness, and you're not going to be, get very far probably if you don't. And it would be a shame 
If a dog can put more focus on a squirrel than a Christian could put on a godly wife, I don't know how it happens. So I'd urge you, pursue godliness. Then the last thing is train yourself for godliness. This is 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The word train that is used in that verse is the word from which we get our English word gymnasium. And, of course, their thought was training for games and uh, all that was involved in that. But I've been to a gym before, and you might be surprised at that, but I have. And I've been to a gym, and uh, here's what I saw. The one I went to uh, had a running track, big all the way around. And it had all these, it had an elliptical machine and a treadmill and stationary bicycles and had all kinds of these machines that you could pull and to work all kinds of muscles. And they had weights of all different varieties and they had a bench that you could lay on and push this, these things up and uh, mats to lay on to stretch your body. And, and now what you're supposed to do when you go to the gym, is use those things. In other words, exercise yourself. It's not good just to go in and look around. Uh, you, you need to use them, and that's the point. You use the things that are provided so that you might uh, help increase your health or your muscles or whatever is in mind. So for the Christian, we're going to train, you need to train yourself in godliness. And God has provided graciously some things that are absolutely indispensable for one who would desire to live a godly life. One of them is the word of God. To read it and to treasure it and to take it in your heart. Let it be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path and love it and read it and memorize it and just take it in and with God's help try to do what it says, which is And then there's prayer, indispensable for a Christian life, and certainly one who would desire to be godly. You're not going to get there without God's help and calling upon the Lord and praying, a very vital part of And then there is Christian friends, in other words, the church, where you have loved ones to encourage you and to love you and to pray for you and to correct you when you need it, and help guide your ways and strengthen your lives. We're not in this by ourselves, and we need to take advantage of these things that God has provided, and and his church is certainly one of those. And if you neglect the church of the Lord, you can expect, you cannot expect you'll ever have much of a godly life. So these things, may God stir our hearts that we might desire and exercise ourselves and focus on godliness. It is God's will. If you are a Christian, godliness is God's will for you, that your life be like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow with me for just a moment as we ponder these things. And as you look into your own heart, uh, consider where you are in this thing of a godly life. Is your heart devoted to God and to what degree? And are you reflecting godliness in your lifestyle, Christ-likeness? Let's just join our hearts and pray, Lord, just help us. Help us. Work in our hearts. Help us to desire it and to want it and give us power that we might do what we on our own cannot do. Help us, dear Lord. So, Lord Jesus, we do pray that you might be our help and our strength and our stay. Apart from you, we confess we can do nothing, but Lord, how we long, how we desire to be pleasing in your sight in every way. Be a godly man, a godly woman, a godly young person. Help us, dear God, we ask it and we pray it in Jesus' dear name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.